Judge Milligan. Let's pray. Lord God, we come from many different places, from many different venues, from many different scenes. We come here to seek, to know, and to love you, and to return with our minds and our hearts to you with thanks for the graciousness and the blessings that each of us have received. Lord, we pray today those who are hurting, those who are needing, those who are searching, wanting. And Lord, that's all of us. So bless us this day as we seek to understand your word in new and dynamic and fruitful ways. Bless John and be with him as he leads us this day. And at the end of the day, we will say thank you, Lord, for another day in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Judge. Okay, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. Uh, come on in. You're not late. Everything's fine. Although I'm going to find you. Uh, here on the board is uh, some of the things that we want to cover today. Okay, so we are going to review the five S's. Do you remember that? Five ways of knowing. Have you ranked them yet? Have you developed your own ranking system yet? Uh, because today you're going to have to use these things. You're going to have to uh, use the ways of knowing when we cover some of the other theories besides the two prime ones that we did last week. Who remembers the formulas from last week of the two prime explanations for the origins of the cosmos? The formulas. <laughs> oh my, well, we'll worry about that later, okay? But you remember, I, last week I taught you the two basic ways that people have looked at Romans 1. Remember that? We studied Romans 1. We went through it, and we saw that some human beings do what? Reject the witness of God that comes through the cosmos, and so they have to come up with some other explanation. And, of course, the other explanation that we studied last week is what? Eternal matter times random chance led to the cosmos. Okay, so they turned the cosmos, which is a secondary, into a primary. Now, those are just two. Today, after a while, in 20 minutes or so, we're going to look at some of the other options that people hold today, Christians and not yet Christians, on the origins of the cosmos. And you're going to see as we go through here that every one of them has something to do with the notion of time, right? So we have to start our clock here. Kronos is running. And uh, I want you to think about time because we're now going to look at, come on in, you're not late. There's a seat by this beautiful woman here. There's a seat over there by that beautiful woman too. All right, so what I would like you to do now is take out Psalm 90. And uh, too bad Dr. Ham is in here. 
because he could walk us through the Hebrew text better than I can, but we're going to do another community hermeneutic today, which means what? No dumb observations. You're allowed to say anything. We look at the text together, and we work it through together. Can we do that? You're not shy, right? Some of you are shy, but you'll get into it. Psalm 90. And uh, this is a special psalm to me in particular because I've taken to giving it to my friends who turn 90. (laughs) And the reason I do that is because this whole psalm is about time. Time, human time, compared to God, the eternal one. And I I have, I still have, two friends that are in their 90s. Uh, I got invited to George Davidson's 90th birthday party six years ago. And I digitally took Psalm 90 off of a, a digital Bible and printed it up for him. And you'd have thought God appeared to him. That meant so much to him. So you, some of you know George, and he's now with the Lord. But because of the doctrine of the communion of saints, we believe what? Once in the Lord, always in the Lord. Once together in the Lord, always in the Lord. So George is here with us in some cosmic manner. I'll definitely miss his little comments. (laughs) Some of you will take over for him. My other friend that's 90 is Betty Jewell. Does anyone know her? (laughs) She goes over to John Knox. She turned 90 this summer, so I gave her Psalm 92 printed out. Anybody turning 90 soon? don't want to admit it, right? It's a great thing to be 90. So, now here we're going to start out. I'm going to read the first two verses, and we're thinking about time, so the psalmist starts out, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or or ever you had formed the earth, or given birth to the earth, really, in the Hebrew, And the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I'm going to keep reading a little bit, then we're going to uh, unpack this. You turn humans to destruction, and then you say, return children of humans. For a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday, when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Okay, so what's the first thing that the psalmist tells us? We're we're looking at life from the point of view, obviously, of people that believe in God, right? This psalm is ascribed to Moses uh, by the ancient rabbis. You'll see that up on the top of your Bible. If that's true, he would have written this probably around 1400 B.C. Okay, so this is 3,400 years old. So what's the first proposition that he makes? What's his worldview? He speaks to God and he says what? Okay, that's one concept. You are, I can see the physical plane, but you are what? You're eternal. So that's the first construct that comes into his mind. What does he say about God, though, in the first verse that's very interesting? You are 
our dwelling and our reference, and the Hebrew word is meon, and it really does mean a dwelling place. Now, how many of you went and saw Interstellar? Now, the whole conceit of the movie is what? Life on Earth is being completely rendered uh, not able to be here anymore because of a blight on the uh, food products. So either humans are going to die, or they have to do what? Find another home. So the whole conceit of the movie is that humans have to find a home. Of course, in a naturalistic worldview, what's our home? Earth. In a cosmic supernatural worldview, what's your home? God. So that's number one. That you, you want to start out here thinking about how the ancients worked with creation. So number two, we've got the idea that not only is God is our refuge, this earth is not our refuge, that God is everlasting. God is no beginning and no end. And everything else is temporal. And now we get to the key one, number four. What, what is true now about God and time? This is what we want to... What is true about God and time? What does the psalmist say? Okay, so a thousand years is the same, effectively, as a day. He gives a couple metaphors. As a watch in the night, as yesterday. How many, what did you do yesterday? It's gone, right? It was Saturday. What, was it, what if that was like a thousand years? That's, now, a thousand in the ancient Hebrew mind was the big number. Okay, so does he, is, do we have to pin ourselves literally? Is he making a mathematical formula? Is he saying that with God, 24 hours equals exactly 1,000 years in God's mind? No, what's the higher meaning? Time is irrelevant to God because God's outside of time. So here, I just have a little uh, thing here, this universal symbol for God. What's inside this box? The cosmos. Where's God? Outside of, now here's another way of looking at it. Now how many of you are into Einstein and what did he teach us about time? Pretend this is the cosmos, not the world. What did Einstein teach us? We don't call this space anymore. And we don't, and we don't actually, in scientific terms, refer to time anymore. What do we call it? Space time. Yes. No, seriously, this is the revolutionary idea of Einstein, that time and space are what? They're wedded. They're bound together. They can't be extricated. Now, this is cool because I don't ever try to use science to prove God, but one of the most exciting things that happens is when what the Bible says fits nicely without forcing what the scientific world says. What does the scientific world say? That time and space are what? They're bound in. So what, where was time before space came to be? It, it didn't exist. Time is bound up in space. You can't think of time as, what, what did the Bible say of God? 
He existed before time. But when the Bible says God's eternal, it's not talking about kairos or time. It's talking about another order altogether. It's not time. It's eternal. It's eternality. That's a mind-blowing concept. So now we find what? That God is not bound where? So, you be God. Because it would be presumptuous of me to do it. Now, you can put this down, and you're free to do whatever you want to do. You can hold it if you want, but you're not in that system. So you're what? You're out of it. You're out of it. You can do anything you want. You're not bound by time. All right, now, this is interesting for the modern world. 3,500 years ago, God inspired, this is what Christians believe, Moses or whoever wrote this psalm, to come up with this construct that God is beyond time, outside of time, and that the created thing is merely a temporal uh, creation, and that this isn't really our home. 3,500 years ago. Now, science has come and told us essentially the same thing. This is a system, and what did we learn last week um, that some people think uh, how this came to be other than the ones that believe that God created it. Uh, there's two uh, current theories. I only taught you one last week. Some of you know the other one. The one that's been holding forth for a pretty long time is that this system has just been around for how long? Uh, well, no, I'm talking about the ones that uh, don't necessarily bring God into it. The, uh, the formula I taught you that was, oh, well, some Christians believe that too. I want the actual formula. How did this system come to be if you don't bring God into it? You have to posit eternal matter. Eternal matter times random chance led to the cosmos. Remember that? Now, there's other people now today, including Stephen Hawking. Do you know Stephen Hawking? Okay. He puts a little twist on it. He says, we don't even need to have eternal matter. We can write up a new formula. And guess what that formula is? N times NP led to the cosmos. N times NP led to the cosmos. N, nothing. NP, natural processes. So Stephen Hawking actually believes that it's theoretically possible, though it's never been observed, that material, atoms, can spontaneously be generated out of nothing. Did you guys know this? Have you heard this? No. Yes. So, has it been proved? No. But it's a theory. So there you have the two views. Um, and uh, now we come to this exciting concept of the psalmist pointing out something that it took human beings to figure out for a long time, that this is a, this is a construct. And the important thing that I want to come out of this text is, what is time to God? What is time to God? 
It's a created thing. And from God's consciousness, this is what the Bible's trying to tell us, God's not involved in the system, so he's not trapped in it. We're the ones that have to labor with this idea of chronos and time, but God doesn't. Now, this is really cool. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, and I want to show you something that Peter does with this text. The first time that the Bible says that God is, that time with God is like a thousand years to a day is in Psalm 90. The second time it happens is in 2 Peter chapter 3. And it's in verse 8. And now here's what Peter said. Beloved, don't be ignorant of this one thing that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now when he quotes that passage or says that passage in 2 Peter 3, he's not talking about creation. What's he talking about? Anyone know? I'll show you. Uh, start at verse 3. Knowing this first that in They'll come in the last days, scoffers, walking after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. So, these are people that are responding to what idea? Where is the promise of his coming? What coming? The second coming of Christ. When Remember, I, we talked about this, the telos, the end of the age? Well, from the beginning of the Christian movement, there's been what? The Christ event. Christ died. He rose again. He's alive. He can live inside of you. And then eventually, what does the New Testament conclude? That at the end of this current age, Jesus Christ is going to come back, right? And we have all these different viewpoints about when and how and all, blah, blah, blah. doesn't matter. The Apostles' Creed tells us very clearly, from whence he shall come, right? To judge the quick and the dead, he will come. It's always been what Christians have believed. So now Peter is taking with the Lord a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years and he's not applying it to creation. What's he applying it to? The end of creation, the second coming. And again, he's saying what? If you're sitting around worried about, the, like people are saying, like, it's been so long, 2,000 years, where is he? And then the, the conclusion is what? Do you guys like French literature? Waiting for Godot. You remember that play? Waiting for Godot? You gotta go see it sometime. Waiting for Godot. It's about two people that wait for Godot, the whole play. That's all they do. They wait for Godot, and guess what? Godot never shows up. <laughs> That's the play. And it's a French existential, uh, nihilistic, atheistic thing. Waiting for Godot is a metaphor for what? Waiting for God. And, of course, from an atheistic point of view, we're all sitting around waiting, and what? He's not going to come. So Peter is reflecting this. 2,000 years ago, people were saying, oh, come on. You guys have been talking about the second coming for so long. It's taking so long. Therefore, we conclude since it's taken so long that what? It's not going to happen. Now, isn't that cool that God in the Bible uses this idea that, listen, people, you have to think about me as I really am. I'm not inside of time. I know you guys are all worried about time, but I'm not because... I created time, and I'm outside of time, and I'm not trapped in time. And God uses that construct to liberate us with these problems with, oh, I'm on fire. 
God uses that to do what? Teach us not to get hung up about time at the beginning in creation, and then what? Not to get hung up about time with regard to the end of time when Christ will come. And if you think about it, what do Christians argue among ourselves more than anything else except these time constructs that, uh, that apply to what? Creation? And then when we get frustrated with that, <laughs> we turn over here and argue about the timing of Christ's coming. Now what did God just teach us? Time with reference to God is what? It's, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's out of our reach. It's, it, and, and so when God looks at it, it's been 2,000 years since Christ came and everything's continuing to go on and we're hoping that he's going to come and God, from God's point of view, that's like what? A couple days. And, that's, and actually, Thomas Aquinas taught us. This is an analogy. Actually, it breaks down because God isn't, it isn't a strict equivalency because God really is outside. God doesn't have his own watch that said, oh, um, their, their 24 hours went by, so a thousand hour, uh, day, uh, years went by for me. That's not the way it works. It's, there's no time thing at all in God. They're just trying to break through to our consciousness to help us understand. It's like a day for us by analogy. Okay, so how long has it been from Christ until now? Okay. We think it's a long time. To God, it's nothing. How long has it been since the beginning? And this is what we need to talk about. So, before we start any further, does anybody want to make any more comments about Psalm 90? It's a great psalm to read. It's about time. I wish I could spend the whole day on it. Okay. So, now, do you happen to have this little handout I gave you about Augustine? You didn't bring it? If you have it, I'd like you to get it out. This is probably one of the most important things that you may learn if you didn't know it already. Now, look at the date that Augustine lived up at the top, 354 to 430. This piece of advice that he wrote right here that I extracted is from a book called The Literal Interpretation or The Literal Reading of Genesis. And he wrote it around 400 AD. That's 16 hundred years ago. Okay? Now listen to what he says. Usually even a non-Christian knows something about the earth, the heavens, and the other elements of this world, about the motion and orbit of the stars and even their size and relative positions, about the predictive eclipses of the sun, the moon, the cycles of the years, the seasons, the kinds of animals, shrubs, stones, and so forth. Right? 1,600 years ago, humans did science. Not all, but a lot of them did. They were doing science. So Augustine says, look, non-Christians do this. And this knowledge they hold to be being certain from what? The knowledge that non-Christians learn from the world, they hold as what? Certain based on, what does he say? Reason and experience. 
What is that? Experience is science. Reason is the process by which we think scientifically. Okay, beautiful. Now, he says, it is a disgraceful and dangerous thing. He uses the word infidel, but that was 1,600 years ago, and I don't want to use that word today. What, what, could, we, what could we say? Uh, not a Muslim, no. Um, um, one who is not yet a Christian or one who holds other than the Christian worldview. How about that? It is a dangerous thing for one who is not yet a Christian to hear a Christian presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scripture talking nonsense on what topics? What was the preceding idea that he just put forward? That not yet Christians do what? They they do science, and they then by reason and experience what? They, they prove it. They, they show it. This is certain knowledge. This is true. Over and over and over again, science proves it. And then he says, hypothetical, some Christian stands up that doesn't know what they're talking about in science and does what? What does he say? Talking nonsense on these topics. In other words... If a Christian who sincerely believes in God and wants to communicate God starts talking outside of their specialty, which is the knowledge of God, and they begin to start talking about scientific matters, but they don't really know what they're talking about, Augustine says what? The not yet Christian is going to listen to the, the Christian talking about science and, and basically nonsense, and then they will conclude what? That the Christian's view on no, they know that the Christian's view on science is bonkers because they know the science. So they listen to a, a, a non-learned science, uh, Christian talking nonsense about scientific matters, and then they draw the inference, well, if they don't know this, then this other stuff that they're telling me about God is probably nonsense as well. Now, you, you can see how reasonable this is, right? Because if, if, like, when you, oh, boy, I want to use an example, but I really shouldn't. There's a, there's a prominent religious movement in our world today that holds beliefs that when some Westerners first hear it, they think, that's completely whacked and crazy, therefore everything they must believe is, is crazy, right? Isn't that what we do? We look at what other people tell us and their beliefs, and then if we can find it to be manifestly nonsense, then we tend to say what? that they must be wrong on everything. So this is what Augustine is appealing to us. So uh, you can read the rest of the thing yourself. It's, it's beautiful. I, I think this is prophetic. You don't have it. I, I want you to have it. Here, have my copy. And uh, I, I, we, had it, uh, we had it two or three weeks ago. We'll get more of them for you. I'm so sorry. You need to get that. It's really good. All right, now, this is going to be a disaster, too. Do you, happen to, do you happen to have the handout I gave you last week that has this chart? All right, we'll get that out. Now, these are the, uh, these are the views that are currently in vogue and held by 
both not yet Christians and Christians. And I did add the other one up there just to be. So here we start out with God. Here's the cosmos. What are the five ways that we can know? We just used sacred knowledge 10 minutes ago, right? That's called tacit knowledge, self-knowledge. We all have knowledge of things that other people don't know. We have the compa- what is it? Sense is uh, logic. Science. Oop. That's uh, experimentation, empirical, social knowledge. Uh, with the uh, provision or the caveat that I made last week regarding the potential false splitting of this from this. Remember, uh, anthropologists now tell us that it's not just genes, which science have discovered, that cause us to be what they, that we are. In the social realm, there is a thing called memes. Do you know what memes are? Uh, it comes from the Greek word mimetic. It means to imitate. Where do we get social knowledge from the beginning? You get civilized by, you're like a little wild animal when you're born. And you get civilized by social knowledge. And you don't learn by constructs and verbalization primarily. You learn by what? Imitation. You learn to observe and watch. Yes, sir? Yes, mimetics, to mime something. <clears throat> so, I don't know if you ranked it yet. That'll be on the final exam. Um, now, we're going to use all five of these today. And here's my prediction. What you use most, or what you're strongest in, what you feel most confident in, is going to be one of the determinators, if not the main determinator, that's going to determine which of these views that you like the best. Because this is the way we know, and if you don't use some of them, or some of them just aren't relevant to you, then you'll have to use the ones that are relevant, and then then you'll look at the views, and you'll come out with a different view than somebody that's using maybe all of them. But we're all struggling with this. We're all humans. And depending on how you look at things, you're going to come out with a different view. So on that chart, what's the first view? Up here, blank. (coughs) A-N. What does that stand for? Atheistic naturalism. Atheistic naturalism. How many of you saw Carl Sagan's uh, Cosmos? And how many of you saw the most recent one by... um, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, Opening salvo from Carl Sagan's 1977 Cosmos. The first show. The first statement. There never has been, nor will there ever be, anything other than the cosmos. What kind of a statement is that? That's the opening salvo. There never has been, nor will there ever be anything other than the cosmos. 
Well, as a corollary, it's a very sweet way of saying God doesn't exist. And on another issue that we need to talk about is, is that a scientific statement? You can't prove it. It's, it, what did we call this? It's an axiom. So it's a starting point. So here we have inside of time, some people giving an explanation. It's called atheistic naturalism. Carl Sagan, uh, a genius, a wonderful man, he, he promulgated this viewpoint. <coughs> okay, and then we get the formula, eternal matter, sorry, times random chance led to the cosmos or amended by Stephen Hawking, nothing times natural processes led to the cosmos. Okay. Uh, now, of course, if you believe that, if you really believe it, then, as we just said, you've just done what? You've negated God as a hypothesis. You don't need God. And then, of course, the entire wing of people that hold this view today are now involved in brain science, brain study, brain psychology, and trying to find out a way whereby we can have a moral code that arises out of the natural processes to take the place of the moral code of the God that we just got rid of. That's what's going on right now in academia. The search for a biological code that can provide the basis for morality. So, Judge Haas, if you live long enough, in 25 years, you might be looking at a document that says what? These are biological processes, and the morality that we're discovering is quite different from this old dinosaur that got left over from where? Where did it come from in the Western world? Our judicial uh, system is predicated upon what? Well, yes, yeah, the ten, but it's more than just the ten the whole Judeo-Christian worldview, right? The whole moral code that we're operating on is loosely based on and derived from the Christian and Jewish worldview. But if you get rid of that, you've got to come up with another model for how we're going to be moral and how we're going to define morality. And right now, Sam Harris is at Columbia University doing his PhD research on this very topic. How can we come up with a moral code based in, in on a universe that has no God and no um, no one to say what's right or what's wrong. Yes. Somebody asked a question. No? Thought I heard somebody. Okay. So that's one view. Very prominent today. Uh, it's got a lot of science in it, but their initial premise is what? The sacred knowledge? It's, it's, is it science? Some of this back here is science. So I want to know, is the first step science? So where are they getting this? It's, it's got to be a self-choice based on the evidence. 
And of course, now we want to look at the other viewpoints that other people have put forward in contrast to this one. Did you want to say something? I don't know. I just have this, this vision that, that um, I, I'm, I'm thinking that the science is maybe going to correlate with what the sacred says, that well, it's going to justify well, we what saw God today says. Well, we that it's compatible, right? It's compatible with, with like, time, space, space-time. Kind of like Galileo when he questioned that mm-hmm. the Earth didn't, you know, mm-hmm. that the sun didn't go around. It's kind of, I don't know. And eventually that didn't ruin the Christian faith. All, it, all we had to do is get rid of an interpretation of the Bible that was in, erroneous. And once we got rid of that a false interpretation, then we said, oh, well, Galileo's not teaching anything against the Bible. So, yeah, that's the hope of Christians that science and sacred can fit together. Yeah, that's always our hope. But if you start out with that premise right there, you just jettisoned what? Any hope for a reproachment between the sacred and the science. All right. Now... then they could be side by side. Or actually you can... Yeah. No, what really puts the pressure on Christians is when this initial axiom is put out there as a part of the as you put it, evolutionary process. If you get rid of this axiom, then, yeah, science and sacred can be friends again. And I would certainly hope, I mean, this is a church, so I'm not going to apologize. I'm a Christian. I use the sacred. But I also want to be friends with what? Science. I want to I use them all. But I want to have them uh, positioned in a way that they're not skewed. I want to use them under... And, of course, if you are a Christian, I mean or if you're a believer in God, I mean, ultimately, you're going to have to jump this up as, you know, up at the top, correct? And so somehow we have to figure out how to make this compatible and harmonious with science because, as the Christian college movement in the United States of America is always fond of repeating, this came out of Wheaton College. Uh, Doc, what's his name again? Um, who came up with this from Wheaton, all truth, Arthur Holmes, philosopher Arthur Holmes, all truth is God's truth. So if we discover something that's true scientifically, then as we grow in science, if you're a believer in God, it behooves you to do what? If you care about it. You've got to find some way to make these fit. However, if you're an atheistic naturalist and you jettison that, then in your enterprise for discovering the origins of the cosmos, you don't have to worry about what? The sacred, you don't have to be worried about reconciling these things. But if you are, then we have to, so Judge Hawes, I completely agree. What we want to have in the end is all five working correctly so that we can get the fullest view of reality that we can afford ourselves. Yes, sir. Look at a weird relationship. Sacred itself. So then how do we separate 
Um, well, that's, of course, what happened in Galileo's day. Um, they believed in the sacred, but in their self, in, in the sense of using their sense logic and their scientific study of the Bible and their social community, they came up with an interpretation of the sacred that was not truly scientifically correct. It seemed right to them, right? Right? But in the, in the end, Galileo prevailed. So we always have to be careful about this. I mean, it can't exist on its own, and the Bible frequently wor warns us about things like self-deception, right? So self is not a perfect way of knowing. It's, we're very flawed. That's why you want to use as many of them in conjunction together under God's uh, leadership, because one of the principles that God told us in terms of how to find truth in the Bible is what? One witness is not enough to establish a matter. Every matter must be established in the presence of what? Two or three. So here's five, and God wants you to use as many as you can so that your knowledge continuously gets refined, and those self-deceptions that we believe because we all tend to want to, we want to believe certain things. And, you know, it's believer's bias. We believe something because it reinforces what we already believe. We all do this. Even these people do it. Humans do it all the time. So this isn't a, a, a fail-safe, but it is one of the ways that we know. And, of course, from the Christian worldview, the biblical authors are always doing what? Oh, God, What? Illuminate me, open my mind, teach me, show me the way. Why? Because this is not adequate in and of itself. Yes, sir. Oh. No, in, in this, the only thing, here's, here's uh, Sagan. The only thing that has ever existed and ever will exist is the cosmos. So you have now deleted all supernatural entities. There's no God, there's no angels, there's no demons, there's no hell, there's no heaven. The cosmos. This is it. I have a really good friend that is an atheist, and we get into conversations all the time, and I get what, this is so timely for me, because sometimes I think she looks at me like I'm a spiritual airhead. And because she has facts and figures, and, and I'll say, but I feel this. And she says, well, there's a place in the brain where that feeling has been shown to stimulate that kind of a, a reaction in your body or that vision or whatever. And I'll say, but you can't prove that there's no God. Even though you may be able to prove that I'm feeling this, you can't prove No, you can't, you can't prove something like that. But you can build a case against it. That's why I'm telling you, they're looking now for the God gene. And they're looking for the gene that, that creates... Um, openness to religious uh, activity. And of course this has been going on for 50 years since the advent and discovery of psychedelic drugs and the Im increase of serotonin in your head. And you know they've done massive amounts of studies. If you give people psychedelics and it stimulates the serotonin in their head, well over 50% of them will have what kind of an experience? Religious. Yeah, so they draw a correlation that there's a God gene. 
That's what she's looking for. Because if you can find inside of nature an explanation for why people believe in God, then it confirms the theory. This is the world we're living in. Okay, yes, sir. Okay, so you're having a, uh, a cosmic spiritual experience in yourself, believing in God. You do have some, you don't sense that it's illogical, but you're not basing it on logic. And you're not, you have some science, but you're not, you're not basing your conclusion on science, right? And uh, I don't know if you're using the social. You were raised Catholic, okay, so it was inbred in you. And so now you've come... Okay, so good. That's what I want you to learn from this course. How do you guys use these? Because everybody in the world will tell you what. This is the way that you should use them or give you a formula or give you an order. But every person actually has to learn how to use these things themselves. And in point of fact, everybody will use them differently because we're all wired differently. Does that make sense? So, what's, what are some other views that can account for this? Now, let's look at the chart. Um, second one down, CYE, Creation Young Earth. Uh, I took all these quotes out of the direct literature of the proponents that believe this view. These are not my views. Uh, the Earth is about 10,000 years old. The days of Genesis are one, uh, one our literal 24-hour days. Uh, this is a straightforward, stone-cold, on the face reading of Genesis 1 and the conclusion is what? To believe this, you must, there's a, there's a, you can believe it and it won't, it won't kill you because you're still believing what? And a lot of good people do believe it. You're still believing what? God did it, but you are now saying in this view that what? That it's very young. Uh, the earth is very young. It's just happened recently. And uh, these pe the people that believe this view tend to, to describe themselves as creationist scientists or scientific creationists. Sometimes ID people believe this too. Now if you believe this, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but if you do believe it, where are you getting uh, the conclusion from? Which, which uh, source of knowledge are you using to, to come to this? The sacred? But the sacred doesn't tell us, except in the old King James Version where Bishop Usher put 4004 B.C., on Genesis 1, do you remember that? Bishop Usher from England did that. He's the one that dated Genesis 1 as 4004 BC. Sometime in October in the afternoon, he said, God created. 
Seriously. Now, how did he get that figure? He went into the Bible and he calculated all the genealogies from Adam till uh, the one that we know where he lived, and then went backwards, which would be Abraham, and concluded that 4,004. But the Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't say. So how did we get the young earth? Well, yes, I mean, in a social group, you could be taught that, for sure. Oh, my gosh, I got to tell you this. Last night, I went over to these people's homes, and they, they had this event scheduled for me to come over and teach. But first, I had to teach the kids. So they had 15 kids there from age f 5 to 15, and they could ask me any question they wanted. And we went on for an hour, and then they went and played, and then I talked to the adults. So this kid, 6 years old, He's semi-autistic. He's sitting on the couch. I said, who's got the first question? <laughs> how long, this is how he talks, how long did it take God to form the universe? Six years old. <laughs> so everybody thinks about this. Everybody's thinking about time. Where did the 10,000 come from? It came from an age prior to the scientific age, best case reasoning that people came up with at that time based on a book, even though some Greeks did, using science at the time of the Bible, said, oh no, the universe is way, way old. So this got put into the Christian community by people who sincerely believed the sacred, but they didn't really care too much for the scientific discoveries that have been going on for the last 400 years. Does that make sense to you? So if you adopt this view and you can and it won't kill you and you can still be a great Christian and everything else, you just have to give up one thing. Or you have to adopt kind of a posture. I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying you, it's an, an inevitability. You'll have to do a certain thing if you embrace this view. Anyone can see it? They held a, uh, a geocentric view of the universe, and then they got shown a heliocentric view is right. Yes? Okay, well... Yeah, well, descriptively, you're totally right. All of the other following views all point to God. The only difference among them is what? Because the next view, COE, creation, old earth, starts off with a way different premise, which is what? The cosmos is... 14 to 20, actually the technical view held today is 13.7 billion. I just use rough figures because you, you hear different ones. But 13.7 is what the current view is. The days of Genesis are eras in which God supernaturally intervened to create new life forms and then subsequently guided the evolutionary process. So 
Here, in this view, what's the difference? The 10,000-year-old view, you believe what? Creation started, and then it's, I mean, it's very little, very little time. The second view is what? Creation started. Well, it's no, no, it's not timeless, because it started. It's in time-space. It's just we've discovered what? that it's way, way, way longer than we originally thought. And this belief then believes that God intervened at certain points in time to sort of tweak the process that was going on. Hey, you guys never told me, what do you have to give up if you, if you embrace this view? Well, since 99% of scientists have rejected that view. I'm not saying that makes it true. I'm just saying that 99% have. That if you embrace that view, then you will always find yourself perpetually in what kind of relationship with modern science? Adversarial, yeah. However, if, if you don't pin your hopes on a young earth, and if you're a open to, well, maybe God did it a little bit of a different way than I thought originally, and you embrace this view, then you're still going to have something of a little bit of an adversarial relationship with science because when you start talking about, well, yeah, but see, God, you know the Cambrian explosion when all of the life forms exploded 400 million years ago? God was the one that was orchestrating that. that that's how this person would think. And the atheistic naturalist would say what? Ah, you're still smuggling God into the whole picture. That's okay, that's going to be a perpetual conflict that we will always have. But at least now, what? We don't have to tell, that person doesn't have to tell the scientist everything you believe scientifically is utterly and completely false, which is what we wind up doing. Yes, my friend. There are many creation accounts. But I think it's just interesting that you know, the Old Testament was preserved so well and like and largely that you know we believe what the Hebrews believed about Well, almost all pre-modern people. Almost all pre-modern people. There were a few atheists that showed up among the Greeks. They were called atomists. They believed just everything was atoms. But most people down through the ages in the pre-modern age, when they looked at the cosmos, they said what? <laughs> this just didn't happen. Somebody did this. It's in the modern age, in the scientific age, as science has risen, that this other alternative explanation has really challenged and rocked the Christian world. And as science has grown, Christians have had to figure out, well, how are we now going to deal with science and all these things that are coming up, which is what we're trying to do in this course. How do they fit, or do they fit? Yes? John, is the, it's like science is the bad guy. It, no, like no. Science, it's, this is just an aspect of it, right? Or it's being used science, is, science is never the bad guy, because science is simply what? Human beings using the faculties that God has given us 
to find out truth about the physical universe. That's not bad. What is the problem with it from the Christian point of view is when you use science then and go beyond the scientific evidence to come up with what? This axiom that replaces God. So science is never the bad guy. That's not science when you do that. That's philosophy. All right, now what's the next view? Some of you might like this. Got just a couple more minutes. FGC. Uh, you guys aware of Calvin College? You guys are Presbyterians, right? That's it. There's a man that teaches or used to teach at Calvin College up in Michigan. His name's uh, Van Till. He's a physicist. And he, he put this view forward and has championed it. It's called fully gifted creation. Fully gifted creation, FGC. FGC. And here's the view. You see how this one's got these little uh, punctuated uh, interventions by God? Well, Van Til says, God doesn't have to do it that way. God could have done it another way. God could have built the whole package uh, back up here in the beginning and put the ID, the intelligent design, the programming into the system and then said what? Go. And still would be considered as sovereignly guiding the entire process because God thought it up all and God doesn't have to dip down in to make all these interventions because God already anticipated that because God is omniscient and built it into the code in the first place. Is that any less of a supernatural view the one I just described, than this one. What, what do they share in common? They both have a God. They both have design and intelligence. They both have a sovereign guided process. What are we arguing about? <laughs> Would that really kill your faith if you found out that God used the fully gifted creation model to bring you forth? that used perhaps 15 billion years to bring a creature like it. Would that bother you to find that out? No. It would. You, you like the mud puppet view better? That no. You'd be finding out, yeah. Yeah, you'd be finding out that the creation of humans described in Genesis might also be a poetic expression, just like the expression, and God made the big light, the little light, and the twinkly stars, which we now know from a cosmic viewpoint isn't really scientifically true, right? It's, that's a geocentric per per perspective. So maybe God in a pre-scientific world describes the creation of humans in a pre-scientific manner, the mud puppet, the forming of the human, the blowing of the breath. But wait a second. If you believe this fully gifted creation view that I just told you, you would still wind up with the same construct because God would have done what? Eventually formed humans out of what? 
No, 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 well, yes, I, after, after the creation, I mean, you know, after he created stuff. If God was, had, had built this fully gifted creation construct and it's running, then eventually when humans came to be, you could legitimately say what? God formed the humans out of what? And also, wait, wait, wait. What makes us distinct? What makes us different from the other animals? We have some incorporeal dimension that God blew into us, and fully gifted creation says that God guided the evolutionary process until that cosmic line that was crossed, and that human became fully human, and soul came alive, and that's how the first human came to be. I, I'm not trying to advocate anything. I'm just trying to describe. I don't think there's anything wrong with it, except in every view, no matter which one you pick, eventually you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to switch your um, ways of knowing around a little bit, and you'll have to give some things up. Every one of these views asks something from you, and it gives you a benefit. And then it just gets down to which one causes you the, the least amount of pain <laughs> and which one gives you, and seriously, I'm being serious now, this is what scientists call an explanatory hypothesis. When something has power to explain something, that's called an explanatory hypothesis. And if it has great explanatory hypotheses, then even though you can't absolutely prove it, the scientific tendency is to do what? If it explains stuff, we're going to pursue it. So every one of these views purports to do what? Explain where the cosmos came from. And each one of them has got little glitches in it and little problems. And what's our task? Of course, pray for guidance. You've got to use this to the best that you can in this little finite world that we live in, and everybody's going to be slightly different, to come out with your worldview on how you think the origins of the universe came to be. And now that you discovered that time is utterly irrelevant to God, when you leave here today and talk with other people who hold differing views with you, what can you say? I'll tell you what I say. Hey, is time relevant to God? Now, so it's kind of relevant to me in a little way because I'd kind of like to know, but in the end, the only thing that matters is what? That God did it, not how long God took it to do it. Okay, I hope that's helpful. Uh, God bless you. I will see you next week, and let's have a prayer before we go. That was pretty good timing, wasn't it? You've given us ways to know so that we can know you. And we saw today, God, that you are beyond our categories. You are beyond our thoughts. You are beyond our capacity to fully grasp. And yet you call us to come as high as we can and know as much as we can. As we are on this journey, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us, help us to be honest with the facts, and help each person here to grow in their ability to live in the 21st century 
and to look at the facts that are being discovered and at the same time uh, we believe that you truly do exist and we want you to be at the center of our lives not just the way we live but our minds, our intellects you told us to love you with our whole minds and our whole hearts so give us the grace to do that today and we pray in Christ's name, amen yes sir